My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Hi, this is John Hemminghouse speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Milanville, Pennsylvania. Let me start by wishing all you dads out there happy Father's Day. I pray that you will be blessed by your family, but even more importantly, I pray that you will be a blessing to your family as an example of what it means to be a godly man. Certainly, our society more than ever needs men who are role models for the next generation. So we here at the Beacon of Hope wish for all of you dads and your families a blessed Father's Day. For over a year now on this program, our pastor has been examining the biblical record of the messages that Jesus Christ himself preached during his ministry on earth. Of the 44 sermons pastor identified in the New Testament that were spoken by Christ, this is message number 41. Over the last two weeks, Pastor Jones has been examining Jesus' largest discussion of end-time events, a message commonly called the Mount Olivet Discourse. Jesus' words are found in the Gospel of Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Thus far, we have studied the first 35 verses in Matthew chapter 24. In this section, Jesus was answering a question a few of his disciples asked him about what they were to look for in anticipation of Christ coming as King. In that section, Jesus laid out many signs that will take place before his return in glory to take the throne of Israel as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The prophecies concerning the coming and reign of the Messiah are well documented and found in several places in the Old Testament. Thus, Jesus' disciples, like countless other believers, were anticipating the rule and reign of the Christ. However, in the section we study today, Jesus talks about a return that does not seem to fit with what he had just described. Is it possible that there might be another return of Christ other than his coming as king? If so, Jesus' words in this section could be the first reference in the Bible to what we commonly call today the rapture. With all the speculation that preachers often make concerning the end times, I hope you will be interested to see what Jesus actually said on the issue. I think you'll find his words both informative and challenging. As we come to you today on our series of the messages that Jesus himself actually preached, we're coming to about the middle of the Mount Olivet Discourse, which if you don't know what that's about, it's Jesus' longest and most detailed prophecy concerning end-time events that we have in all the scriptures, and one of the most significant passages of scripture concerning um, the end times that that you could you could read in the scriptures yeah one of the best and it's recorded in more than one gospel but the best uh, to me the most detailed and, and the longest account of this is found in Matthew chapters 24 and 25 and for the last couple of weeks we've been dealing with this message and so uh, as we come to today's uh, study I, there are three main sections that I'd like to deal with today the first is I'll just briefly review where we have been. And what we're going to talk about is what has Jesus discussed with his disciples so far, and why has he done that? And again, again if you haven't uh, been with us uh, before, or if you are just uh, maybe not remembering quite what we've talked about the last couple of weeks, just a brief review of that. Then we're going to go uh, on where we're going from here. That is, and this is going to be the dominant part of this, the message. I'm, I'm going to go over why I believe this is the first place in the Bible to discuss Christ coming to take his own out of the world in what we would call a rapture. And so we're going to, and this will be the largest section because I'm going to have to um, uh, inf- in, inform you and, and kind of give you a, some reasons as to why I believe this is so. I don't believe that um, 
Uh, you should just take my word for it. I'm going to try to show you from the scriptures why I've arrived at the conclusion that there is, in fact, a coming of Christ that is um, uh, without any signs that could happen at any moment, and I'll show you why I believe that. And then the last section will be what Jesus' prophecies mean to you right now. What? Well, so um, we believe that Jesus could come at any moment. What does that mean to you? And how can you live in light of that reality? So, uh, briefly where we have been so far in this message, the disciples were, were Christ. This is late in his ministry. And at the end of chapter uh, 23, Jesus has been giving another message. And this one to many of the religious leaders called scribes and Pharisees of his days. These would be the more conservative ones, the ones who would actually be more in, in line with Jesus theologically Although, tragically, um, many of them were hypocrites, and uh, so were denying his authority and, um, and the truth of his words. But Jesus uh, has been dealing with them, and he has told them, uh, I'll just read to you verse 37 to 39, as he concludes this message. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so, if you're one of Jesus' disciples, what's running through your mind? Well, you you believe Jesus is the Messiah. You believe he's the Christ. You've been living uh, with him following him around. Actually, uh, God, he has given you power at different times to uh, uh, throw out demon, uh, demons out of possessed people, uh, do other uh, miracles. It's like you've seen the power that Jesus has, and you believe he's the Messiah. You're looking for a literal kingdom. And what I mean by that is there had been prophecies down through the ages that there was a Savior coming, and he was going to be uh, the king of Israel, and that his kingdom was going to be eternal. He was going to bring peace to the world. And so that's what the disciples are looking at. They're looking forward to that, that coming kingdom. And they believe that since Jesus is the Messiah and they are his closest followers, they're going to be high up in that government. And, and they believe that Jesus is going to reign over God's kingdom. And that, and that, but then they see this confusing thing, and that is the rejection of the religious leadership of Jesus' day. And that is just what had happened in chapter 23, as, as Jesus has just told them, you're not even going to see me again until you're going, to, you're going to welcome me as the Messiah. And so Jesus said um, uh, that uh, then, as they're walking out of the temple, in chapter 24, verse 1 says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. So they wanted to, look, Jesus, look at these beautiful buildings. And they were. Uh, Herod had been working on this project for decades and so uh, this was a beautiful uh, uh, complex. There's more than one building. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? As I'm in verse 2 now. Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now that had to be extremely troubling to these men. Uh, again, if I was, uh, uh, if you just put it in, in the context of, of being a, a, a patriotic American like I am, Imagine going and, and someone giving you a tour of Washington, D.C., and then, and then this person who, um, again, is Christ himself, is saying every one of these buildings is coming down, fellas. And that would be extremely troubling, in, in not only in light of their patriotism, their love for their country, but also in light of, okay, well, well what does this mean about this coming kingdom and, 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 and our nation embracing you and we being rulers with you? What is, how is that going to work? 
And so they have two major questions, and they're reflected as they come to Jesus now later privately, uh, just about three of the disciples. Listen to uh, chapter 24, verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, and and by the way, the Mount of Olives just overlooks Jerusalem, so you you could get a nice view of the city from there. The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So their two concerns are, first of all, um, when? Like, well, how is this all going to work time-wise? Are, are we going to live to see this kingdom? How is this going to work? And then how will we know when you are going to return? And so those basic questions of when and how, when is this going to take place? How are all these things going to fit together? They're hoping the kingdom will be in their lifetime. And, and then how are we going to know when you do come? And Jesus really doesn't answer the when question. He, he does give them signs of when he's going to return as king. Now, remember, he's not talking to them at this point about a rapture of a church. They don't understand that at all. They're asking about when are you coming as king, and the end of the age that they're talking about isn't like the end of the world that we'd be thinking of. It would be the age of rejecting him. When is this age of, of when they're not going to believe you until they, you said, until they welcome you as Messiah? When's that age going to be ending? And so Jesus then begins to lay out signs of his return as king. And we talked about these. So he mentioned uh, wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes. All these were mentioned in verses 1 to 8 of Matthew, uh, excuse me, verses 4 to 8. And, and then Jesus said at, at, in verse 8, all these are the beginnings of sorrows. So he's saying there's terrible times coming, fellas, that are going to precede my coming as king. And these are just, this is just the beginning of it. And then he gave them um, uh, several other signs that are going to uh, follow the the first uh, four or five that he gave them. And and here, let me give you some other ones. He said, he mentioned a worldwide persecution in verse nine. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now we've seen persecution in uh, you know some countries like right now, uh, if you were in a, a many of the Islamic countries, Christians are persecuted. If you were in the communist countries, right now many Christians are persecuted. But it's not a worldwide thing. Jesus is saying you're going to be hated of all nations, all over the world. There's going to be persecution against believers. He mentions many being offended. He mentions betrayals taking place and hatred and uh, a false prophets rising, a great sin and hardness among the people. These are all found in verses 9 down to verse 12. He mentions the gospel going across the world in verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So that's going to be going on during this time of suffering and persecution. Still, the gospel is going to be going forth in power. He mentions then a specific sign we, we dealt with a week or two ago, and that is the what's called the abomination of desolation in Scripture. What that's all about is there's going to be a one-world ruler who's going to act like he's a friend of Israel, and yet at, at some point he is going to show his abhorrence for the Jewish people by offering a pig on their altar and um, at that point ushering in a, a, another effort to extim- exterminate of the Jewish people. And, and Jesus is warning people, when you see this happen, you need to run. This man is going to try to destroy you. And of course, we what comes to many of our minds is the horrific events around Adolf Hitler and what he tried to do 
Uh, but this uh, this is actually a, a, a another future horrific event that Jesus is describing that will precede his coming. Then he mentions all kinds of uh, signs and false claims trying to deceive believers into thinking that Christ has is, is, is come. Uh, and, of course, they'd be longing for him. He's warning his followers not to follow those. And then he, he gives some heavenly signs that are right on top, right in front of his coming as king. He mentions this in verses 29 to 31. I'll read those to you again. It says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And so these final heavenly signs of literally the, the, the lights going out across the world, the idea that the sun's dark and the moon doesn't give its light, the stars are out of kilter, and, and all of that happens in a world that has been rejecting Christ. He says all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and there's a, there's a backstory behind that. Um, God has been pulling out as many people as would turn to him during this terrible time of suffering. And you say, well, why would God bring great suffering into, into the world as a way to try to bring people to himself? Let me ask you this question. When things are going well for you and everything is, is, is beautiful and easy, how, how hard do you seek God? And how about uh, if you're not saved and you don't know Christ as Savior yet, or maybe you do, and, and you have a neighbor that you're concerned about. When things are going well, how much do we think about the Lord? Many times we do not give God his due in times when things are going well. And so God often uses trouble. I've seen this many times in my own ministry of reaching out to people who have for years um, been uh, very hateful toward God, the things of God, would not listen and yet, as God, in his mercy, brought a terminal illness into that person's life, they begin to stare dead in the face the reality of eternity's coming and uh, begin to think about uh, repenting of their sin and turning to Christ before it is too late. And, and, and God, in his mercy, I've seen him save uh, different people at that time. Then Jesus gave a parable in verses 32 to 35 of the fig tree. And uh, let me read that to you briefly. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And so what Jesus was saying in that parable of the fig tree is new growth on a fig tree foretells the coming of summer. And so he says when all these signs, now you don't just cherry pick and say, well, you know, we've seen a lot of violence lately or we've seen plagues lately. And we've, you don't cherry pick it. When all of those signs come to pass, and Jesus gave about 15 of them, he said that generation is going to live to see the kingdom going to live to see the kingdom. So the generation that sees those signs is going to live to see the kingdom. And he says, Christ will keep his word. Whatever else happens, he said, my words will not pass away. They will happen. Now that brings us then to verse 36. That's where we, so we've seen the context of where we've been so far. But verse 36, I believe is like a pivot verse 
and there's reasons for it even in the in the uh, in the original language. But let me go ahead and just read what verse 36 says. Now Jesus is still talking. He says, "But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only." Now he's just been giving us sign after sign after sign of his coming, and he's even said. Um, okay, when you see this final thing of, of all of the sun and moon stars going out, that's the, the, the time I'm coming. I'm, I'm coming at that point. So the question is, what does he mean by the day and hour no one knows? And there's a couple different ways you can look at this that I know of, and there may be others. First of all, you could think of it as the day and hour of his coming as king. And when I was in college back in the 1800s, um, I had a, a great uh, Bible teacher that I uh, just learned so much from it in the area of prophecy. And uh, we had a whole class um, on Bible prophecy, and I was very blessed by uh, uh, Mr. James, now Dr. James Price, um, and was a tremendous help to me. However, um, he was teaching at that time uh, of a viewpoint from another great scholar, Dr. John Walvert from Dallas Theological Seminary, which would have uh, interpreted this, and so I did this for many years, as the, the day and the hour is, is Jesus talking about the exact moment of his return as king. And from the context of everything he said up to that point, um, you could understand how you'd arrive at that conclusion, because that's exactly what he's been talking about when he's coming as king. However, um, I remember talking to my dad, who's also been a pastor now for oh, over 60 years, and um, I remember when I came back from Bible school saying, well, Dad, this Matthew 24 and 25 is all about the return of, of Christ as king. It has nothing to do with the rapture. And my dad um, told me I was wrong on that and that um, actually uh, there's sections of it that deal with his return as king and there are other sections that deal with his, his coming in what we would call the rapture, a secret coming, that does not accompany signs. And one of the ways he said you could find that differential was to look for what is known and what you do not know. And I said, Dad, you can't do that. That's arguing backwards. Um, I had my reasons. And for many years, I thought my dad was nuts on that until I actually did some reading outside of, um, I was at a, a, a part of a pastor's fellowship, and we were going through a, a different months we'd meet, and we would uh, take a subject, and we'd have to deal with it. And so I was given a subject on the issue of prophecy and a, a certain issue that related to that. And as a result, I did some reading um, and uh, on this section from people that don't even believe in the rapture. And I f- felt that they had an interesting point that was valid, even though I didn't agree with their conclusions. I thought they had a very interesting point, and that is what follows from verse 36 and following does not fit with the idea of Christ coming as king. And it really has helped me. I went back and I thought, you know, maybe my dad was right all along. I may not have agreed with the way he got to that position, but I, as I began to re-examine these passages, um, that these verses that I'll deal with now, I became convinced that actually this is not talking about the uh, coming of Christ as king from verse 36 on to the rest of the sermon. He's actually talking um, about his coming in for his church, something that the disciples would have no idea at this point. But we can read later and understand what Jesus is talking about. So the day and the hour that Jesus is talking about, I believe, includes the events that he just predicted, the time when that will start to happen, and I would call it the day of the Lord, 
when when the um, when when these events that Jesus just had been talking about begin to start to show up on the world scene. So uh, if this is true, this is the first reference in the scriptures to a rapture. Now, why do I say that? Well, let's keep reading. Jesus says, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now the comparison, and this is a key comparison, to the day he's talking about now is as it was in the days of Noah. And I've, I've, uh, in many um, times over, have heard good and godly men. And remember, we've said that prophecy is not a, um, a, a clear thing. We're looking at a bridge in a fog. We're looking at certain things that we can see and much that we cannot see. And we have to have grace in our hearts toward those who would look differently. I think one of the major mistakes we can make when, when studying prophecy is to think we've got it all figured out. And so I'm going to give you my viewpoint, and I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you why. That's why we're going to spend a lot of time talking about, in this section, why I believe this, there is a secret coming called the rapture, when Christ comes back for his church, and why that could be at any moment. We have no idea when that's going to be. But um, there are people that disagree. And so uh, the comparison here that Jesus gives is to Noah's day. And the question is, um, uh, what were the lost doing in Noah's day, that Jesus is comparing now to this time when, when this day and hour when he, when he returns, and again now I'm talking about not returning as king. Now we're talking about a secret return, a return for the church, a, a sudden return that has no signs of company. Why would I say that? He says, as in the days of Noah, so will the son, coming of the Son of Man be. For in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Now. I would ask you this question, is there anything wrong with eating and drinking, marrying and getting and giving in marriage? Now, unless you put a negative context on drinking and just assume it's alcohol, which we don't know that's the case, um, as far as, as having banquets or, or getting together for a backyard barbecue or uh, having a wedding reception like is, is, seems to be indicated here, uh, marrying and giving in marriage, that type of thing. Is there anything wrong with people getting married? And the answer is no. So what the lost were doing in Noah's day, now there were other problems. There was tremendous violence. There was other things going on. That's why the flood came. But Jesus' comparison here to Noah's day is that, is that basically they're unconcerned. They're, they're going through life with uh, just the normal good times that they're having and marrying, giving in marriage, eating, drinking, but they're not concerned. It says they, until the day that Noah entered the ark. The comparison Jesus is making is of a people unconcerned and of also of a people who are ignorant. He says they do not know until the flood came and took them all away. Now you say, didn't, didn't Noah warn them? And the answer is, yes, he did. But many people are unwilling to listen. And how many people didn't even listen to Noah? And so they didn't, they didn't, oh, that's a, he's crazy. He's talking about some worldwide flood. Come on, it's never going to happen. He's building this boat in the middle of nowhere. This huge boat is, it's more of a laughing stock. And so they wouldn't believe him. The Bible talks in Second Peter, very similar context, by the way, in, in the context of the Lord's return about people being willingly ignorant. 
And that seems to be what's going on here. So we have people that are unconcerned, we have people that are ignorant, and we have people that are obviously unprepared. Now notice again what Jesus said. As it, but days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, there's the unconcern, and did not know, there's the ignorance, until the flood came and took them all away. There's the, un, the lack of preparation. And then he says this, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now there's more to this passage, but we have to take a few minutes here and just think about this, this uh, coming and what would be going on. If this was merely a reference to Jesus coming as king, you remember we said that Jesus gave all those signs about what would happen before his coming. Well, actually, many of those signs are given in, and in far greater detail in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, you have the prediction of what we will call the tribulation period in which uh, it, it's sometimes referred to and the, the, the picture that is sometimes given of this time period right before Christ's coming as king is of a woman in travail or a woman who's in labor. Now, it's, uh, there's several references to this. Uh, Mark chapter 13 and verse 8 is probably the closest one. Um, and I'll also, if any of you are taking notes, I'll just give you another reference. Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 4 to 9. But in Mark chapter 13 and verse 8, Jesus made this comparison. For a nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. Again, this is the same time period he's talking about. It's the same sermon, it's just from, in a different gospel. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. And that uh, idea of sorrows is literally birth pangs. That's actually the comparison. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. And um, so this idea that there's going to be um, is, is, is compared to before the return of Christ as king is prepared to to a woman in labor now ladies uh, those of you who are listening how do, how does labor work um, now we've my wife uh, has has had four children um, I did not feel any of the pain that she experienced but I was with her during that time and um, uh, I, I think ladies you understand far better than I do that how labor typically works is you have some early contractions and they start growing in in frequency and in pain. And what will happen is you'll have a round of contractions, and then there'll be a little break. And then there'll be uh, other contractions will start to come, and that round will go a little more intense, and then you may get a little break, and then you get another set of contractions coming in and they get more intense until maybe there's not even much break between from one contraction to the next and the pain is un, unbearable almost until that child finally is born. And that is the picture of how God describes end time events of a woman in travail. Now I want you to think about that in light of how the book of Revelation actually falls. Because there are three major sets of seven judgments each that go through the book of Revelation, talking about this very time period right before Jesus returns as king. 
And the first set of judgments, and there's seven of them, is the seal are, are the sealed judgments. That first set, they are they are found in Revelation chapter six, verses one to seventeen. That's the first six of them, and then the seventh seal opens in chapter eight, verse one, and it reveals another set of judgments. So it's very similar to the woman in travail. The idea is that these seven judgments are horrific, and they um, uh, the result of just the first seven judgments of what called the sealed judgments is one fourth of the world's population dead. In, in just that short period of time. Now, to give you an idea, right now the world population is getting approaching 8 billion people. So what, what is described in the book of Revelation at the end of the seal judgments is one quarter. That means about 2 billion people dead within a matter of, of, of months. Now, uh, there is evidently a break of some type during the tribulation period, and then the second set of seven judgments hits in in, in Revelation is chapters eight and nine, and are the first six of the what are called trumpet judgments, where God is blasting out, announcing His uh, judgments upon the world. Some of these, by the way, are man-made, like wars, etc., violence. Uh, but some of these are. The uh, divine intervention with with uh, uh, could be a plague or a famine, something along that line. Now the trumpet judgments uh, in chapter eight and nine, and then the seventh trumpet sounds in chapters uh, chapter eleven verses fifteen to nineteen. Those judgments result in another third of the world's population dying with a matter of whatever time these uh, judgments hit. The whole thing lasts uh, a grand total of seven years. This entire tribulation. Now, I want you to think about this. The first set, if you had a population of 8 billion, H, uh, 8 billion, you have 2 billion dead at the end of the first set. You have a third more dead at the end of the second set. Now, again, if you have now down to 6 billion people on earth and if there's no population growth during this period, just, just assuming that, and I don't know that, that means another 2 billion people die. So at the end of, of just those two sets of judgments, we have half of the world's population dead. I can't imagine that. I really can't. I can't imagine how horrific those judgments would be. And many people say, well, why would God be so so diff- uh, so hard on humanity? You think of all of the lives uh, of, of the innocents that have died in human history and God avenging those deaths. You also think about the fact that many of the people that um, will, there will be many that will be saved during this period because of the trouble that they go through. God is using this to try to call people out before he has to judge them eternally in a place called hell. So we have the trumpet judgments. The third set of judgments happens in chapter 16 of Revelation, and they're called vile or bold judgments. Bold is probably a better word for our uh, society. The idea of you can just think of, uh, of, of the wrath of God like, like, a, like um, uh, as compared to uh, wine or, or, or grape juice. Filling a bowl... And that bowl then being poured on the earth. And there aren't even figures. Okay, we had a fourth dead at the end of the first. We had a third of the remaining population dead at the end of the second set of judges. We're not even told what the numbers are in this last set. But we have such things as a horrific sore that falls on people. We have the sea, the, the, can you imagine this, the oceans of the world turning to blood. The, the waters, the fresh waters turning to blood, the horrific things that happen at this last uh, uh, judgment are just, um, again, mind-boggling. 
And the only way we can describe it to you, folks, which is why many commentators have backed away from it, is because there is no way this happens without God's direct intervention. The final judgment that falls is a horrific earthquake that basically wipes out the the, uh, islands of the uh, ocean and also uh, flattens many of the mountain chains. There are uh, tremendous uh, hailstones that are falling that are just destroying everything. Now, why do I say that? Because as you return to Matthew chapter 24, and Jesus is saying, of this day and hour, no one knows, but people are going to be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that this happens. That doesn't fit with this the description of those terrible things at the end of the book of Revelation, which means this, the coming that Jesus is referring to now in verse 36 through 39, I'm convinced, is not his coming as king. It is that secret coming that has no signs connected with it. It actually precedes the tribulation period that I was just describing. It is what we commonly call today the rapture of the church. It is God taking out those who have accepted Christ before those horrific days fall on this earth. Now, if that is so, and I believe it is, then let me just uh, quickly explain then what comes next. Because these signs that now Jesus is describing this, it, uh, this, this coming that he's, he's picturing is not a coming of, uh, as king at this point. This is a coming where he is going to come unannounced for his true followers. And this proceeds, it goes before the terrific events of the tribulation period that, that um, are coming before his return as king. Why do I say that? Listen to what he says, the very next thing after talking about Noah's generation. I'm in Matthew 24, verse 40. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and another left. Again, that does not fit a situation of worldwide persecution. It does fit a situation like today, where you have believer and unbeliever working side by side, and one is taken, and that would be the believer, and the other one left behind, and that person left behind will go through that horrific time of tribulation that I was just describing. He mentions another example. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and the other left. And again, those two pictures are then two men in a field, two women grinding at a mill. The idea is men Uh, who are saved and lost working together, women who are saved and lost working together, and they're separated at one moment. Now, he says then, he makes two statements here, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. So he's telling us, be ready. You don't know when this is going to happen. I'm convinced he's talking about the coming of of Christ for his church, something the disciples would not have understood at this point. They wouldn't have all those details yet. But he's talking about a coming that is that is that is is independent of all those other signs. This is something that's going to happen while while men and women saved and lost are working side by side. In one of the gospels, he even mentions two uh, a, a, a man and wife sleeping in the same bed and one taken and the other left. And then he tells us again here in verse 42, Watch therefore, you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. I'm going to keep reading, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
So he made the statement in verse 42, watch, you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And then in verse 44, he says, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That does not fit with everything he's been talking, where sign after sign after sign was predicting his coming as king. And if you were uh, at all had a, a scripture available to you, you could you could knock off this sign and this sign and this sign. And if you missed all the other ones, you could say, guess what? The lights just went out. The sun is dark and the moon's not giving us light. I bet Christ is coming soon. In this particular time, he's saying, I'm coming. And this coming is his coming for his church in the rapture that precedes that horrific day of tribulation. He said, I am coming when you don't expect me to. It'd be a day, honestly, much like today. Now, he gave an example in verse 43 of a thief coming. Now, the example of the thief is actually found in several places in the scriptures. Now, I'm just going to tick them off to you. I may... um, uh, read one or two, but for, one of them is found in First Thessalonians chapter five, and um, verses one to ten would be the passage dealing with it. I'll read you a little of that one. First Thessalonians chapter five, and I'm going to start at verse one. It says, "But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night." Isn't that interesting? It's a thief in the night. Now, how does a thief come to your house in the night? Does he does he come there and, uh, you know, uh, uh, give you a phone call ahead of time and say, I just want you to know I'm going to come over and I'm going to rob your house, um, at, you know, 12.05 a.m. And, and just wanted you to know ahead of time so maybe you could have your goods out for me. Is that how he does it? No, a thief comes by stealth. A thief in the night specifically is the term here. The idea he's coming when you're sleeping, when you don't expect him to come. Now that very same concept is mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 3, and again, it's connected with the day of the Lord. Now, again, I, I know many of you probably don't have a lot of background on biblical prophecy, but the day of the Lord is, 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 a, is a period of time that was mentioned in the Old Testament, and it contains both horrific suffering as well as a tremendous blessing, if you look at different passages that deal with it. And that would exactly fit the time from tribulation that the that the uh, that the world will go through to uh, the the coming kingdom and the ushering in of that kingdom. Now I'm reading from Second Peter chapter three. This is the Apostle Peter writing this. He says, "But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night." Isn't that interesting? As a thief in the night. And then he goes on and mentions some things that will happen during that period of time. It's it's quite a long period of time. It's not just don't think of it as one particular day, uh, but it'll be ushered in, I believe, by Christ's return for His church in what we call the Rapture. In Revelation chapter three, Jesus Himself again mentions His return, comparing it. And by the way, He's writing this. He's saying this to one of His churches. And he's comparing it again to a thief. This is Revelation chapter 3. He's writing this to the church at Sardis. He says, Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. In Revelation chapter 16 and verse 15, it's right in the middle of these horrific 
description of these terrible suffering at the very, very end of the tribulation period and in, and, in, and, and interjected in there. And I believe to help the reader to say, look, I want to avoid all this time. Here's this statement. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus, again, interjects into this uh, through the Apostle John. I'm coming as a thief. Now, so how would you prepare for a thief if you knew he was coming? Let's say that, uh, remember in the old movies where somebody is, uh, uh, is, is dying, maybe they got shot or something, and the detective, the hero of the story, comes up and he, he sees Bill, and Bill's uh, 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 about to die, and he goes, Bill, you know, what, what, who did this to you? And, and Bill says, it was, it was, and, and, and then he, he, he dies before he can get the words out. Well, um, if, if, if you were in a situation like that and, and someone was trying to warn you and say, you know what, your, your house is going to be broken into, there's going to be an attempt to, to kidnap your children, uh, take them hostage, um, and, and you're saying, well, when is this, who's going to do it, when's going to happen, and the phone line gets cut off or, or the, your cellular reception goes down. And so you don't know. All right, so you, you, you know that there's a, a, a thief that's coming, you don't know when he's... How do you prepare for that? Well, I first of all don't think that many of us, if we took that, that um, warning at all seriously, would just sit back and do nothing. I think we would be working on maybe going down and buying a security system. Uh, we might even hire a person or two to watch the house when we're asleep. We might ourselves sit up and um, make sure that we're ready uh, if someone should come. We would... The point is we would take very practical steps to be ready for that thief's coming. We would we'd do everything we could. And so when Jesus compares his coming to the coming of a thief, what he's saying is you ought to be taking very sensible, practical steps to be prepared to meet me at any moment. Now some would may, of you may say, well, I, I don't believe... I don't believe in this uh, rapture. I've, I've heard it before. I've, um, and okay, you don't have to agree with me on that. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely concede that prophecy uh, is not something that we can be certain about. I, I think there are, there are good scholars that are going to see things different ways. Let me ask you this question. Can you promise me you won't meet God tomorrow through death? Can you promise me you've got another day ahead of you? And the reality is none of us can and whether Christ comes through through his return for his church and gets you and I, or whether he comes through uh, to us through death, we're going to stand before him and we don't know when that's going to happen. And so we need to be ready for the, our Lord's return. Now this fits very well with something that Jesus told his disciples later on. Now let's remember, this is late in Jesus' ministry. And so... He um, is, is, um, is, the cross is just a few days away, actually. It's less than a week away. And when Jesus dies on the cross, three days later, he rises from the dead. And he will have, um, uh, after his resurrection, will appear to his disciples. And over a 40-day period after his resurrection, he will off and on uh, teach his disciples and instruct them until um, his uh, uh, ascension to heaven, which we have recorded in Acts chapter 1. And in that particular passage, 
he's been teaching them specifically things that's concerning the kingdom of God, which is very interesting. It's chapter uh, 1 of the book of Acts at, at verse 3. When you come down to verse 6, you understand the disciples, still, they're not looking so much for a church. They're looking for that return as king. So they're not really looking for a rapture. I mean, Jesus has mentioned it, but but honestly, if you read through there, you might not pick out the difference. And I'm sure the disciples are a little fuzzy on this. And so they're asking him again, when are you going to return as king? Because listen to what they say, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this going to be your time when you're going to come back as king? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. That's a very interesting statement. The word times there has to do with, fellas, it's not for you to know how long until I return. And so those who try to claim that they will date when the Lord will return, they're just absolutely out of their league. They, they really don't know what they're talking about. Jesus himself told his own disciples, and that's that, and by the way, we get the scriptures from the disciples and from those in that, in that uh, who knew them. So to, for us to say that we're going to be able to now figure out when Jesus is going to return, when he didn't even tell his own disciples, I think is foolishness. He clearly tells us here, it's not for you to know the times, how long it's going to be. And the word times is chronos, from where we get the word chronology. It's not, not for you to know how long until I return. And he says, it's not for you to know the seasons. And of course, we, we understand seasons, summer, winter, fall. There's difference what it looks like. Here in, in, in northeastern Pennsylvania, um, I was just speaking in Florida the other day, and, and I was telling them, you know, the seasons up here are pretty marked. There are marked differences. Fall has the beautiful leaves. Winter, we have snow. Um, spring, we have a lot of mud, and we have a lot of up and down temperatures. Summer is one of the most beautiful places on the earth to be with all of the green and all of the beauty around us. The seasons are different, but Jesus is saying, and think of it, it's not for you to know how long it's going to be till I return. It's not for you to know what it's going to be like before I return. Not for you to know the season, what it's going to be like. Now, this gives me great hope because that means that Christ could come back even at a time of great spiritual awakening. I think people often today assume that they know the season and that is they think that they know, oh, it's going to be really terrible until our Lord returns. And, And he said, it's not for you to know the season. But he did tell us this, but you shall, this next verse, Acts 1 verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. He said, here's what you need to do, fellas. Don't worry so much about when I'm coming, but get busy telling other people about me before I come back. That's our job. And so let's come back now. We've, we've looked at um, where, where uh, the context of what Jesus was talking about in this passage. Now we've looked at what Jesus has been talking about seems to indicate that it's a coming with no signs attached to it. Now, what do we do with this? How do you live this out? How do I live this out today? Well, he, he um, coming back to Matthew 24, we're going to finish out the chapters, verses 45 to 51. Jesus says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant? whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. 
I assuredly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. Okay, so being ready for, uh, for Jesus' return means obeying and following his instructions. The, the, his first example is of a servant, and he doesn't know when the Lord's going to return any more than we do. What's the servant doing? He's doing his job. His job was to be ruler over the household in the absence of the master. His job was to feed people, to take care of people, and he was doing it. And so even though he didn't know the the, the time when the Lord was going to return, he was ready because he was doing what he was told to do. Obedience and will bring honor to God, and it shows that you are living, trying to be ready for Christ's return. But there's another example that Jesus gives us right on the heels of this. But if that evil servant say in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, what we're seeing here is that obedience to the Lord and following a righteous lifestyle is is evidencing a genuine faith that I believe he's coming back and I need to be ready for him. Whether it be through death, whether it be through his return, I know I need to be ready to stand before God before this day is through. But the but disobedience, as as was the example of this of this um, evil uh, ser- servant. Notice what the servant said in his heart: "My master is delaying his coming." That is this: "My master is not coming now." I'm not, I don't have any chance of dying. Pastor Lane, you say that, you know, you can't guarantee tomorrow. Uh, I'm not going to die tomorrow. I'm not worried about that. Um, I'm not worried. I, I, I'm not going to stand before God anytime soon. I, I really don't know if Jesus is coming back or not, or maybe I say that I do, but I don't think it's going to be today. And so the, the key lie is the master's not coming for me now. You'll also notice the revealing actions that show I'm believing the lie is my ungodly living. In this case, he was beating his fellow servants. He was eating and drinking with the drunkards, living an ungodly life. And then he had the tragic consequences. He was caught at an hour he did not expect. Again, you could look at it coming through death, but in this context, it really is the return of our Savior and you'll notice he is he is grouped with the hypocrites. That means he was lying about his faith. He was a fake. Oh, he may have gone on and 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 said he believed. I remember a number of years ago, um, there was a guy who was attending the church at that time, and he, we had talked about baptism. He had never been baptized. He wanted to join the church, and in our church, you not only have to have said that you've accepted Christ as Savior and have a test salvation testimony, but you need to have followed Christ in baptism since your conversion. And so talking to this guy, um, he wanted to be a member, and I, so I, I mentioned uh, you know, what our criteria was, and he said, well, I haven't been baptized yet, which I appreciate his honesty. And so we, we talked about, well, you know, what do you think about getting baptized? And I think at one time he was planning on it and then backed out. And, and, and so anyway... Um, I said, well, well, we'll talk about it again. And it went on for quite a period of time. And I didn't say anything to him. And finally I came back, and uh, uh, this has been, I don't know, maybe a year or two since we had talked about it, because I didn't want to push him on it. If a guy doesn't want to get baptized, um, uh, just to be honest with you, I'm, I, can't, I can't bank on his conversion, and I don't want to push somebody into doing something 
that they're not uh, that they don't have a heart to do. They need to do this out of obedience to the Lord. And so, but I had given my word to him. I would come back and talk to him later. So I I, I came back. It was a number of months later, and I said, "Well, what, you know, have you thought any more about it?" And he said this. He said, no, he goes, I guess I'm not going to do it. But he said, um, and again, I think he was just kind of nervous at that. He said, but you know, it looks like the Lord's going to return anytime soon. You know, it's got to be soon. And just to be honest with you, I really felt like you don't believe that. Because if you really believed that Christ was coming soon, I didn't say that. He's a old, quite a bit older than me. I didn't want to be disrespectful. But if you really believed Christ was coming soon, you'd want to be ready. And if you hadn't followed the Lord and believers' baptism, you'd want to do it. You'd want to get the sin out of your life. You'd want to start living for God. You'd want to warn those that don't know. I believe Jesus is describing his coming in the rapture rather than his coming as king. As king, And that could take place at any point. And if you really believe that Jesus could come for you today, either through death or through his return, it, it better make a difference in how you and I live. And how we live is we live in it, we, in the idea of being right with God. We make we confess and we make sure our sins are, are are dealt with before the Lord. We make sure that first of all we know Christ is Savior. If you haven't accepted Him, you don't want to go through this time of tribulation. I'll guarantee you that. And then if once you've accepted Him, you want to be right with Him. You want you want to have um, you want to have uh, uh, dealt with the sins that you've committed. You want to get out of any uh, evil habits that you're involved. You want to be ready. And you want to help other people to be ready. If you really believe Christ is coming, it changes the way you live. Are you truly believing that Christ could come for you at any moment? And are you living that reality? Or are you like this guy? He didn't say it out loud necessarily. But what he said in his heart at least was, eh, the master is delaying his coming. I got time. I can live like I want to right now. That's the person who is in very, very great danger of missing God's kingdom entirely and being punished forever as a hypocrite. May God deliver you from that attitude, and may you be ready for your Lord could come at any moment. Lord bless you. As always, if you have a spiritual need and would like to interact with someone who can help you, you can email us at help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. For those of you who can attend in person, we live stream many of our services. You can access them on our Facebook page by searching for Calkins Baptist Church. We also have a podcast that contains the recordings for this entire series. The best way for you to access that resource is to follow the radio bowl icon that we have pinned near the top of our Facebook page. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. For me, for me he lives his life and